Justin Rinaldi, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode of the Track and Field Performance Podcast. How are you doing? Great, thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, good morning to you and it's good evening for me. Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, it's always difficult setting up, um, you know, I suppose, calls with people on either ends of their day. But I'm glad we could make this happen and um, we've got a lot to get through. You are, of course, um, in the business of coaching world-class 800-meter runners. But for many of the, I suppose, listeners that don't know who you are and and how you got to this point in your career where you are coaching many of the best in this event, um, yeah, give us a bit of a rundown. Yeah, well, I'm a, a former 800-meter runner myself. Um, I was running in the early to late 90s. Uh, I won a national 800-meter title back in 1997. Uh, I wasn't a great athlete. I was probably a good national-level athlete. I ran 147.60 and 340. Um, you know, I, I look at my career now and think, yeah, I was an average-level athlete. Back then when I was running, I thought I was a lot better than I was. Um, but during that period, I had a, a number of different coaches. Um, I ran quite late into my 40s. Uh, I, ran, I was in 150 shape when I was 40. And probably the last 10 years of my career, I was coaching myself and and making every error you could possibly make as a coach. Um, but I think all those mistakes I made on myself uh, are benefiting my athletes today. Um, in term of, terms of my coaching career, I never really dreamed of being a coach. A young athlete by the name of Alex Rowe came to me when he was uh, 15 and asked me to coach him. Um, I kind of laughed at first and I said to him, look, I'll do it for six months uh, and then we'll find you a real coach. So I'm happy to help you, but let's try to find you a real coach. Um, and he was 15 and he improved from 154 and around 150. Um, and then he didn't want to leave and I didn't want to let, probably let him go. So we came up with a long-term plan of breaking the Australian record, which had been around for a long time. And, you know, six years later, he actually did break the, well, he equaled the record. So it was a good start to my coaching career. Most definitely. And it's interesting point you make there. I feel like a lot of creative philosophies that have come through different events, um, usually stem from someone who's been through you know a long athletic career themselves and has had those like trial and error experiences and kind of I suppose played around with different influences whether it's you know from the middle east whether it's from you know america whether it's from europe and just kind of curating their own model which is what you've kind of done and um yeah that's kind of where we should go next i guess is like you know you have created a, a very different philosophy to, to perhaps some of the the ones that are more popular in the 8 and 15 today. Um, and if you could maybe break down briefly what you believe is your underlying philosophy or over overarching philosophy um, when it comes to training a elite level 800 meter runner. Yeah, well, I think my program and it's probably different, you know, when we started, you know, 2000 or 2012 2013 when i sort of started this philosophy that i'm still continuing today um, but we have two real key cornerstones and that's our monday speed session that we do and when i say speed i mean you know the a lactic you know 30 meter reps 50 meter reps with long rest and long rest three to four minutes um i know pure sprinters probably have a bit more but for a, a middle distance runner four minutes is a long time when you're running 30 meters um, and we do that year round. So it doesn't matter if it's winter or summer, we're doing that. You know, and we do dam path drills. Um, we do hurdle walkovers. This is a typical sprint session on a Monday. Um, and we do that year round. And then on the Saturday, we do a more endurance 
uh, type session, and that might be four by a mile, five by a mile. Um, and we continue those year round. So it doesn't matter whether we're in, you know, the peak of summer or the middle of winter, those two things stay fairly consistent. And it's just the really the Tuesdays and Thursdays that we we tweak during this the winter and the summer. Mm, okay. And so the Tuesdays and the Thursdays, I mean, and, and, I, and I'm kind of rewinding here a little bit. The, I'm, I'm assuming the Monday and Saturday, they change in that like the intensity, maybe volume and maybe the, I suppose, even the length of the reps you've, you've talked about doing a pure speed session, 30 meters might be, you know, something you do early in there. Does it kind of, I suppose I'd like to know before asking about the Tuesday and Thursday is how does those things, how do those things kind of progress into maybe, how do they take another form maybe? Yeah, so it doesn't actually progress that much. So we, the the pure speed stuff, the reps are between 30 and 60 meters um, and the volume stays the same. It might only be five reps, but they're mm -hmm. really intense. You know, I, we do it from a standing start. The guys run individually. We don't run as a group. Everyone does their, their, rep, their rep on their own and it's as, well, 95% to 100, you know, you're never going flat out, but we keep that year round. So it doesn't yeah. matter, like I said, if it's winter or summer. As, for example, we're in the middle of our summer right now, and the guys running indoors are in the middle of their indoor season. They're still running, you know, five by 30 meters with three minutes today. Um, what we do, we tack on a little bit of like 400 meter tempo work at the end. So they might do 10 by 100 meters um, at 12 second pace. So it's not that hard. But you've done your pure sprinting, and then the 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 hundreds are just working on the the four hundred meter tempo. Brilliant. And that that's seen similar year round. You know, one day we might do four by thirty, next day we might do, sorry, the next Monday we might go 30, 40, 50 meters. Um, so we sort of play around with that. But yeah, the max would be sixty meters. Very interesting. And I think what's jumping out at me there is, and something I've never heard of, is is that rest ratio too, because you know that those kind of um work to rest ratios that you're using there are kind of like sprinters and and it's not always you know something you hear too much about with 800 meter training is that you know it, there's always kind of some modification made to make it slightly anaerobic or, or aerobic and um you kind of have stuck to just no no alactic speed just good intensity why do you think yep. that's so important for the 800 meters yeah so i think the penny drop for me so i i come from the typical background where you're in a middle distance runner and you think speed work is maybe six 150s of the jog back rest uh, or you kick off the end. That's speed work. Um, and I was doing that with myself and my my athletes. Um, in 2013, Alex Rowe was running in Europe and he ran like 145. But as everyone would know, any 800-meter runner who's run in Europe, sometimes these fields have got 14 or 15 athletes in there. And Alex was getting out well, but he, I was finding him at the back of the field. So he was like 12th uh, and he was closing well and coming third and, and second in some of these races, but he was just so far back at the start. Uh, so I reached out to Steve Hooker, so Olympic pole vault champion, who was coached by Dan Paff and said, hey, Steve, I feel like I'm missing something. Um, I need to get improvement just in the first 200 so my athlete can, you know, maybe go half a second quicker with the same kind of effort. And that's where we started this Speed Monday, as I call it. Um, and Steve Hooker came down. He taught us all the damn path drills. He basically ran our Monday session for about two years. Um, so he was our speed coach for two years. And everything I learned about our Monday session is from from Dan Path, but through Steve Hooker. Yeah, that's great influence to get passed on. And, and so interesting because I was actually listening to um, 
another interview the other day with a very world-renowned coach, um, Randy Huntington, who yep. uh, coached, um, you know, Mike Powell in, in the long jump and, and several of the Chinese jumpers that have had success over the last few years. And even hearing him talk about his philosophy for the 800, it just kind of shows that, like, you know, spring coaches do know how to kind of, I suppose, when you're a coach or a coach type of thing, you know, you really understand the kind of raw capacities that are closely tied to the event. Um, and, and you've kind of shown that there with Dan's influence and in terms of knowing maybe the missing piece to to getting your 800 guys uh, at, an, at the next level. You know, one thing that's commonly said about like, you know, I had a few chats with people of who they'd like to come on the podcast and, and obviously your name was mentioned, but something that was mentioned alongside you is not just that your kind of philosophy is kind of more speed based compared to traditional, but also that you're quite an open book with sharing your content. Like you post your sessions all the time. You don't kind of leave missing details. And it, and it sounds like you answer pretty much any question that comes your way as well on Instagram. Why do you feel that's so important in a world where kind of, I suppose, fine margins and, and, and like competition at, at a world level is, is you know, I suppose the end goal for a lot of people and they feel that's enough of a reason to be secretive in some cases. Yeah, it's funny. And and my athletes come to me knowing that every workout they're going to do is going to be on Instagram or Twitter. Uh, if it's a good workout or a bad workout, I don't lie about the time. So if you have a, a crappy session, it's going to be on, it's going to be on Instagram, it's going to be on Twitter. Um, and they just accept that. They know that there's there's no real secrets. You know, I know this, my philosophy is slightly different, but there's other people doing similar things around the world. And every idea I've got has been borrowed or stolen from someone else. So it's not really my intellectual property to keep secret and not share with the world. Um, and I'm not, I don't think that everyone in the world wants to know what I'm doing, but there's some people who are interested and they ask me a question. I, I like to try answer every question I get, even if it's a little bit, silly i try answer them um but yeah i, I don't mind being open I, d I don't think that just the training aspect of what we do is the be all and end all i think we do a lot well i do a lot of you know reviewing other athletes races coming up with really good tactical plans for races and that kind of stuff's not shared on the internet I'm not, i don't say that hey peter bowl is going to go to the front in the olympic final and try to push it from 500 meters out i'm not saying that you know so they're the secrets i sort of keep to my to my chest um, or to my heart, but the uh, training stuff, it's everyone can copy that. I don't mind. Yeah. That, well, that makes sense from some of the other things you've said in that, like you've kind of seen from doing your philosophy that like some, some people have ended up maybe at the back of the pack. And so I guess you understand that races irrespective of what training we're doing can play out in a number of different ways. And so like, you know, you're still leaving one big variable kind of undiscussed and, Therefore, you can kind of, I suppose, keep, uh, yeah, some stuff to your chest that's not exactly going to, you know, as you say, the, the, the training is not going to determine completely the outcome and that a lot of the tactics may uh, have, a, have a vital component to it. Um, threshold training. It's, it's, it's a hot topic nowadays, as I said, um, you know, before we got on here, that uh, the likes of the double threshold um, training uh, setups are, are readily used by many middle distance runners and and because of the success of the likes of the Norwegian athletes, um, mainly Jakob Inkerbrixen. But uh, do you, yeah, what's your kind of, I suppose, take on it? Not per se of like in general, but rather like, do you adopt any of that within your own, I suppose, setup? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because 
obviously it's a it's a bit of a, a trend at the moment and you'd be silly as a coach not to think about how you could implement something from that into your training um again most of it's really high volume that what Inga Britson's doing my 800 guys you know they probably the Inga Britson's probably do more in two workouts than my guys doing a whole week um so it's interesting like that I probably can't adopt a lot but one thing I have learned is just how they've dialed back on the intensity you know they might do a workout or a session of 10 by a thousand meters um and just the intensity they do is probably something that I thought my athletes should do but you think about it and think well if it, Jacob Jacob's running 1245 why should my guys be running with their 1000 meter repeats at the same pace as them so maybe we dial it back and get the same benefit so that's what I have learned is that we can dial back on the pace on those aerobic sessions that we do on Saturday and probably still get the same benefit. We do a little bit more volume. So typically in the past, I might do 6K worth of volume. So four by mile, six by a thousand. So what I've learned is that I can dial back the pace of those sessions and get more volume. So we might do five by mile or eight by a thousand. So that's probably the the one thing that I have adopted. Um, I'm still thinking about this double threshold and how I can work it in. I'm trialing a few things, but I'm not going to talk about that yet because it it might not work. It might be a complete mess. I don't want to lead people astray. Yeah. And I suppose that you're still in the experimentation phase, even to this day, you know, you, you kind of said that during your athlete career, you were, you were kind of playing around with a lot of things, but it's good to kind of, I suppose a lot of coaches will say rule of thumb 10% every year is, is something they may change within their training and, but 90% of it will kind of stay the same. And I, yep. and I suppose, do you feel that's kind of necessary at times? Like maybe some of the athletes that you've been with like for, or have been with you for a long time that like year in, year out, you can't always repeat the same training um, without it going stale. Like, have you found that variety on an in an annual calendar sense is 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 essential to kind of I suppose reaching new levels. Yeah, what I I mean, the mistake I think that some of my coaches made was repeating the same workout multiple times. And I think if you're doing you know six by k, it's kind of hard to mix that up very much. But for example, a session or a, a workout I used to do was five by three hundreds with four minutes rest. Uh, it's quite lactic. It's quite hard. I knew what my best average was to the hundredth of a second. And we repeat that, you know, six or eight or nine times in a season. I got really good at doing that session. Um, whereas my guys, we might do the same, that kind of workout once a year uh, and only repeat it every three years. So I think that's where I get the variety from. I try to mix the sessions around so they're not always doing the same really hard workouts because I don't want them to get used to use them as benchmark sessions and say, well, last year I did that and now I need to do this to improve because it's kind of irrelevant. At the end of the day, it could be a little bit different in wind. It could be hotter. Um, but interesting, like we have done that five by 300 workout with with our four minutes rest and none of the athletes I've coached has ever run quicker than I average. So I kind of think it's a pointless workout because they're, they're three or four seconds quicker than me. So does it really mean anything? Yeah. And so there, there's a psychological element that you're talking about there, but do you ever find that like some of the repetition of doing workouts kind of can take away the novelty of the stimulus, if that makes sense? Yeah, a hundred percent. I, I, that's why like I try to find new ways of doing things Whether it's, you know, doing the same session, but in a different venue this year. Um, we do hills. I know we're going to talk about the Tuesdays and 
Thursdays. We do hills every Thursday, sort of during that base period. Um, and I've got seven or eight different hills that I rotate around. Um, so, you know, we might do 16 weeks of hills, but we might do the same hill only twice in that 16 weeks. So that's the type of things I use. I just, you know, I spend all my time on Google Earth looking for a new place to train. So, you know, you try to trick the athlete to think they're doing something different, but they're really doing the same thing, just in a different location. Yeah. And I think that does matter again, back to the psychology side of it. Like when you're looking at year round kind of effort and just sustaining like your not interest per se, but we'll just say that like it is, we, we, it, we're we in an interesting sport where we spend so much time in preseason compared to other sports. Like people yep. get kind of dumbfounded when I tell them that I train from September to January and I don't touch a competition until then. And then that's like one month of a window and then you go back for three odd months and then you're going for only two months of a, a window really of competition. And to when you look at it like that, I think then you realize, yeah, you got to have some variety in there, even with the hardest of workers, because it does just kind of keep things fresh. Doesn't mean that they're going to just stop showing up to training if they don't vary it. You know, the people that are at the elite level kind of will do whatever. But I think it's just a, it's a nice um change of pace regardless and kind of I suppose yeah keeps keeps people fresh and and I suppose an interesting thing that I want to jump on there with the hills is do you with that is it just the change of scenery you're looking for or are you looking for different gradients because you're looking for different effects of the session and and that sort of thing yeah and to be honest I don't get like I know the hills that we use I I wouldn't have a clue what the gradient is I like my hills you know some hills are too steep and the athletes just loses form and they become really hard to run up so I like a hill that's not too shallow and not too steep. So it's kind of, I don't know, I, I don't know how to really explain it. But no, I'm more looking at this for them to maintain the same running mechanics as they would on the ground, on, on the flat, but with a slight challenge. I don't want it to be too much of a challenge. So they're running really slow and get too far away from what they're trying to do. Um, but the main variant we use is one week we, we do what I call short hills. So from you know, from 200 to 100 meters. Uh, I know for a sprinter, it's probably not too too long, but, you know, so you wouldn't go any further than 200 meters on a short hill week and a long hill week would be 200 up to 400 meters, sometimes 500 meters. Um, so we rotate between that. The volume, the total volume would st- stay the same. Um, but the, there's like, so for example, I say 100 meter hills, we, we might do 40 times 100 meter hills. Um, and then you might do 10 times you know, 400 meter hills. So it's the same total volume. It's just a different way around. Yeah. And why do you think it's essential to kind of vary that? Is it just how your kind of mesocycles are set up or is it just something that like, again, kind of, uh, it hits all the markers of, I suppose one, one on one side you're hitting like, well, the intensity change is probably a better question. Yeah, The, to ask the intensity changes like with yeah. the, you know, the 40 by hundred, I just stole it off Sebastian Coe. He was a good runner. So seem to work well for him but i've changed it slightly i we make we do four reps easy one rep hard and just continue that until you get to 40 so every fifth rep you're going hard and by like easies might be 15 to 16 seconds so it's still fairly quick for 100 meter hill and the hards you try to run 13 seconds um so you're still getting a different stimulus in there but it also helps break 40 reps up into chunks of five so you're just thinking about the hard ones every fifth rep um there's still a lot of volume because, you you know, you've got to jog back down. That's another four kilometers of jog, jogging back down a hill. So the total volume is eight kilometers, um, but you're still getting some quick stimulus in there. 
And given the fact that your Monday is quite speed heavy, do you then kind of go the opposite end of the spectrum on the Tuesday? Is that generally like quite aerobic all year round? Yeah, it is. It's quite aerobic. Um, you know, we typically try to stay on the grass or off the track. We, we use the track during the base period only on Monday um, because, you know, you want to run fast. Sometimes it's winter, sometimes it's dark and cold, so you stay on the rubber track. Um, and then when we come to the, the peak of the season and we're doing more of those harder sessions on the track, we'll switch that Monday session to a, to on the grass. So, for example, tonight here in Australia, we're on the grass. It's middle of summer. There's lots of grass parks around that you can use. Um, so we use that kind of surface. Um, but yeah, yeah, we the intensity of the Tuesday is always quite aerobic in nature. Okay. And then like, does that, that kind of even stays the same? Like, for example, during the comp period and you're just dropping maybe the volume or adjusting things slightly in that sense? Yeah, I think one thing that has changed probably over the last 10 years is I'm getting a little bit more volume on Tuesday. So... You know, we typically say Tuesday during this part of the season's 1500 meter pace. Um, I might have done, you know, three to 4K worth of volume, and now I'm trying to push it out to five kilometers of volume, um, but at the same intensity. It's something that I kind of didn't expect to ask you, but it's something that's just popping up as I've had discussions with uh, middle distance runners. As you probably well know, Ireland is, you know, we, we, we thrive in the 800 plus kind of areas and have done for years yep. and something that I, I hear between athletes um, not that I feel that like many athletes have kind of experimented with the speed stuff um, as much but I've heard athletes kind of talk about during comp season uh, sustaining volume to a certain degree let's say if an athlete is generally doing like 100 miles and then they drop it down to 50 you know yeah Typically, people think that's great. You're going to be fresher. It's going to essentially ensure that you're, you know, ready for races and focusing on quality. Have you found with different athletes, albeit your your system is a bit speed focused um, compared to what I've just mentioned, but have you found that different athletes need to kind of tap in and, and sustain maybe the volume in the, the general week compared to others? Yeah, so if I'm looking at someone like a Peter Bowl or Joseph Ding, they tend to sit in that 40-kilometer to 50-kilometer range all year round, and the volume doesn't change that much because it's quite low at the start, you know. So yeah. you don't, you know, they have a they have one or two days off a week, um, whether it's in the base phase or, or summer, so I don't really need to change that. When I was coaching a, a Jeff Risley who came to me, you know, he was 35 years old, he'd had a long career but was coming off the back of an injury, he typically ran, you know, 130 to 140 kilometers a week. And he's coming to my program was a massive change for him. I was just learning to do those sprints on a Monday night was really neurally fatiguing for him. Um, and he, he wasn't used to having three minutes of recovery. He thought he'd come back and go straight away. So he made a few changes for him. We brought his mileage or his kilometers down to closer to 100 kilometers a week. Um, but he was still doing the basic program or it took a while, like it probably took six months for it to finally click for him. Um, and then he went to Europe and ran 144, you know, at 35 and made an Olympic semifinal. Um, I think that was his fastest time in nine years. Um, so, yeah, it does take a while because I think looking at four or five by 40 meters on a piece of paper with three minutes rest looks really easy. If you do it properly and you're actually sprinting, it's a completely different feeling. And if you're not used to it, it does leave you pretty wrecked for a few days afterwards. Yeah. And I think 
it's a weird kind of um, effort perception that we have, I think specifically amongst middle distance runners, not to call you guys out, but you know, I will say that middle distance runners have often said to sprinters and jumpers, you guys are lazy. You don't work hard. Like we are doing the kind of tough workouts, but as you just made a case for like, neurologically speaking, like five by 40 meters to someone who's never done it and hasn't conditioned themselves to do it is tough. Um, yeah. And I suppose if you did it consistently enough, you'd find out that you actually wouldn't get too far. You know, you'd shut down almost or you'd kind of burn out by trying to repeat that stimulus just because it's easy in terms of volume or total distance run. Um, doesn't mean it's. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I watched Fred Curley do a session here in Melbourne last year when he was out here running at the Murray Plant meet. And he took. 25 to i think 27 minutes i think it was the exact time 27 30 something i think on my watch i had and he just ran two 150s but man if you if you, you saw the power he's putting into the track in that 150 it was amazing and you know someone running at that speed and putting generating that much power needs a long recovery um middle distance runners probably can't generate that much power but I think we try to work towards being as explosive as a Fred Curley. Um, so I think you need to make sure you have that rest so you can try to do that. And it takes a while. You're not used to running, you know, twitching of muscle fibers that quickly and uh, exerting them over 50 meters or 40 meters that hard. It takes a while to learn to do that. So just with your kind of example there with uh, Jeff, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, his name was, yep. is that you were kind of sustaining the volume to a safe degree where, you know, a complete change might have killed them altogether. But again, also allowing for the fact that you were including completely new stimuli through the, the speed. Um, how did you kind of, I know this is probably a, a ridiculous question, but how did you come up that like kind of 100 kilometers or that range would be somewhat of the sweet spot do you get what i'm saying and yeah it's it, and to be honest it's trial error with, with each athlete so all of my athletes that i coach i mean there's only seven of them and you know the, a number of them have run 144 i think i've coached five 144 runners probably only two of them have got the exact same mileage for the week so it's all slightly different so you know one might be doubling and doing an easy morning run they'll have the morning off so i try to tailor it to their needs uh, and what I think will work best for them. Because even though I, I believe that all my athletes should do that Monday speed session, some of them, some of them are just not going to be as quick as the others. So I've got to try to find, you know, I'm working on their weakness and their strength at the same time. I don't want to completely forget about their strengths. Um, but, you know, typically we'll do a long run on Sunday. And if you're going to do 90 minutes for two hours and then think you can come back the next day on Monday and run flat out, this is not going to happen. So you've got to dial back on that Sunday run, long run, and you know maybe just an hour is long enough uh, to be fresh the next day. Yeah, that no, that makes total sense. It's 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 no, it's kind of knowing what's realistic and what kind of the taxation yeah. of those different, I suppose, energy systems and and everything else take from the athlete, and and it's something to kind of of, I suppose, I want to elaborate on because I know many will be thinking through listening to you talk there about how they could make those modifications, how could they include a little bit more speed work and, and what would they have to sacrifice potentially, you know, to do that? Because I've, I've had so many, you know, middle distance athletes even come up to me and say, Colm, like, you know, you do a lot of plyometrics, like, you know, what could I do to, to do that? And I, and I'm always hesitant to maybe say, if you think you can just tag on plyos to like your 120 mile week and you're just going to get no repercussions, um, you know, you might be, you might be like kind of 
undervaluing or or better underestimating the you know the impact that you're you're putting on your body there through the plyometrics. So something's got to give, doesn't it? In often in oftentimes, yeah. And I think I think some athletes and coaches get into the make the mistake of looking at the total volume and saying, well, this is the volume I need to hit, rather than saying, well, what what do I actually need to do? So my philosophy is, what is what can I get the most benefit from the least amount of work? So, for example, if I knew that doing bounding or plyos, uh, if I spent 20 minutes doing that twice a week, is that better than doing a second run for the day? Um, and I'm, my athletes are going to improve a second just by doing that, then I'll look at doing that. I don't I don't say, well, I'm going to do that plus the run because I know something, something has to give. Because I made the mistake when I was an athlete, I just thought, you know, I was typically trained really intensely and didn't do a lot of volume. In 2001, I thought, you know, I want to win the – actually, my goal was to win the Commonwealth Games 1500. And I thought, I'm going to add an extra 100Ks a week onto what I'm currently doing and keep the same intensity. And I trained bloody hard uh, for 16 weeks. I was – I don't think anyone could train that hard. But I ended up with two stress fractures, I had compartment syndrome, and I ended up missing three years of running after that. So I know how hard – you can train but it was pointless because i didn't even get to race but man i was fit during those 16 weeks i was i was an animal but yeah it was just impossible to do to train that hard yeah i'm i'm laughing because i've i've literally gone through a similar situation as well it's like you know you're great for that window of time but i think we overlook like what's sustainable and you're always having to look through that lens um when you're kind of implementing new training stimuli it's like look this is great but can you do this all year round? And can you do this with, um, you know, oftentimes we don't have a lot of room to do extra is my point. I, I think that's probably like a a decent assumption to make. Of course, it's hard to exactly say that one athlete won't get away with it. One won't get it, you know, um, and, and, and another won't, but it's, uh, you know, you, you so often see that with adding extra stuff on, you get to the point of no return where you reach burnout or a serious injury and that like, you wonder why did I need to get greedy essentially? <laughs> yeah. And I think it's, it's a bit of a mind shift. And I, I mean, I do keep an eye on every 800 meter result around the world. And I know that, you know, the, the Irish have improved in the last few years. They've gone from having, you know, just Mark English running 144, 145. Now we've got a few, one we, you guys have got a few 145 guys there. And I can see what some of the workouts they're doing on Strava. And I, I know some of them are doing a speed session. It might be on a, a Thursday. Um, and if they're listening, they'll probably work out who they are because they know what sessions they do. But they're doing a similar kind of program to what, what, what we're doing. It's it's slightly modified the days around. But I think the general philosophy is is the same. Keep the endurance there. Work on your speed. Reduce the overall volume. Um, and I think they're seeing the benefits by having some consistent results and hitting those 145s. And then maybe another year of doing that, they'll, they'll jump into the 144s. Yeah, I'd love to see it. It would be fantastic. And we definitely need more Mark English. It's not that he's going anywhere anytime soon, but, you know, uh, it might even spur him on, you know. Uh, he's I've a, seen he's ageless, great. that Mark English. Yeah, absolutely. And, <laughs> it, and it is brilliant to see. And, and you feel like he's got more in, in the tank. But I, I remember seeing a great race between him and Kia McPhillips maybe two years ago. And just was nice to to know, like, look, these, these young guns are coming for you. Um and probably was was keeping him on his toes. Not that he needed it, but uh, it can never hurt. I don't think. Um, yeah. And Mark's got great speed. Like he's split forty four on a relay before. Um, 
So he's he, he doesn't he's an athlete that doesn't look fast. He's deceptively fast. Like if you looked at him, you'd think he's not fast. But then if you put him in a four by four, he runs past you. It's like damn, where'd that come from? It's so. it's it's unbelievable. We were actually only talking about that. Um, we were on a training camp where I saw one of your athletes a few weeks ago, and um, yeah, we we're just talking about like how does he make it look so easy? Like he literally does not have high frequency, but it's just he's just covering so much ground. Yeah. And uh, yeah, a couple of people have said that like he's extremely elastic. Um, then he makes hurdle hops look like he's a sprinter or a jumper, and that like he can you know pistol squat ask the grass no problem several times over were perfect for him so now that's aside from the fact that he's he's naturally very gifted but it's just interesting like you know as you say he doesn't look like he's moving that fast but he you know 44 is is legit and um you know you've got to be fast to do that it's 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 insane um something that's it's kind of i suppose seemingly more complex given the fact that you guys um have several seasons over in Australia now. I know you don't work with just strictly um, Australian, New Zealand athletes, but trying to kind of achieve standards um, throughout, you know, a calendar year and then being ready also to peak at the championship. It seems like, uh, you know, a, a difficult task for many people to have something left in reserve, have, you know, not new workouts to kind of have in the tank, but just kind of maybe walk me through like some of the, ways in which you I suppose set up training and, and, and the races in order to hit a standard potentially for an athlete and then also know okay three months after that or four months after or two months after that like you've got still then the championship to essentially produce your best at hopefully yeah and it is a challenge and I think one of my key strengths is that I've always been able to produce athletes that run well in a Australian domestic season uh, and then go and improve in Europe. So we don't leave it all on the track in Australia, but they still run some fast times here, you know, uh, Peter Bowl, Joseph Ding might run a, a low 145 here and then go to Europe and run 144. Uh, another athlete of mine, Brad Mathis, who who's, works full-time uh, and does all his training after work. Um, you know, he, he ran a, a, a PB here in Australia, but then went on to Europe and, you know, broke 146 for the first time and ran 145 over there. Um, what I've done over the years is just actually reduce the number of hard 800 meter sessions that we do during the Australian season. So, you know, if I go back 10 years, I might have done six of them to get ready uh, for our nationals. And now we only do two. So those real pure 800 meter workouts that are hard and you may throw up after, my guys might only do two of them during the Australian season. And then when we go to Europe, we do more of them there getting ready for the world champs um so that's how we you know i'm kind of lucky because with my philosophy you're always really quick so you can always run your 200 meter pb almost all year round you know my guys you know peter bowl or joseph den can run 21 point with a standing start uh in summer and winter um and then so we don't have to do too much to get them ready for an 800 you know when you can run 21 going through in 51 52 is pretty pretty easy um so I find that we get away with doing less 800-meter type work in the Australian season, and we can save that for the domestics, or sorry, the European summer. Um, that's that's how we got away with it. And like I said, over the last 10 years, I've just been reducing them less and less. I've even toyed with the thought of doing none and seeing 
what results we can get, but I'm not that brave yet. <laughs> I'll, I'll save that for later. But yeah, two is probably the minimum we do during the Australian season. So it's like, yeah, minimum effect, minimum effective doses you kind of alluded to earlier, but not, not, not too minimum yet. It's still, no, it's still a, a, a kind of trial and error process, as you say, but that is interesting. And I suppose, so what I'm, what I'm maybe picking up on there is that like the athletes through the season after, let's say the Australian championships and stuff like that, just get better at processing the 800 meter specific work and almost like responsive to the races as well because as you say the raw speed's always there is it that they just get true exposure get better at kind of i suppose not flushing but like kind of bouncing back and that there's always kind of a not a skill being un, unwinded through the season but you know what i mean there's a familiarity to the stimulus there's a familiarity to the the, the race scenarios and that's where the gains are are still to be accessed as the season goes on yeah exactly because i mean one thing I don't want my athletes to, to, to fear, you know, the, the goal is to, to be able to go through the first lap in the 850 seconds. You know, if you want to be world-class, I don't want my athletes to ever fear running 50 seconds. So that's, you know, that's why we do the speed. They know that 50 seconds, they can always do that year round. Um, and then those 800 meter sessions just make you tolerate that. Um, particularly when you get to the last 150, 100 meters of race, that's where, you, know, you can get that through racing. So when you're racing a lot in Europe, you get the same stimulus because you're, you're putting yourself in that state. You're building up lots of lactic and that last 100 meters feels like hell the first few races and then you you know, uh, you know, learn to use it. But then we try to mix in some of those harder workouts in between to get them even even more used to it. What would be an example of, of one of those? Um, I don't know, like a... It changes every year, but like a, a a good session that Pete Bowl did before the Olympics in in two thousand uh, keep on thinking twenty twenty Olympics, but I know it was a year later. Um, he did ten two hundreds with a two minute rest, uh, an average like twenty four two or twenty four one three, I think was the the average. Um, but he ran like the last rep in twenty two three. Um, so it's I mean it's 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 not a long rest, but two minutes goes pretty quickly towards the end. Um, you're kind of lucky because if there's a slight tailwind, two minutes is enough to get across, crawl yourself across. Um, but that's what I consider a hard 800 meter session. Yeah, it sounds should, like, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I probably should be a bit more clear on what I talk about 800 meter pace. So I break the 800 up into three different sections. Um, so the first 200, of, of the 800. Uh, and if you just look at the splits, you can see it's pretty clear what the 800 looks like. So the first 200 is typically quite quick and you know that's 24 second pace. Um, and then you've got the middle 400. So from 200 around to 600, it's typically that 26 second sort of pace. And then the last 200, if you can close under 27, you're going pretty well. So all my sessions or workouts sort of revolve around those three paces. Sometimes we're working on the first 200. Sometimes we're working on that middle cruising speed and sometimes you're just learning to hang on at the end. Um, and and to do that kind of hang on at the end, we might do 200 to 30 seconds rest, for example, uh, and the pace is close to the 26. Whereas th that session I talked about with Peter, that's in the 24s, that's more that first 200 of the 800 where I want you to get out in 24 point and be in a good position uh, so you're not at the back of the pack. It sounds like to me that you kind of stretch like you go slightly above sometimes with, let's say, the the pure speed stuff, but then you kind of go 
slightly below in terms of intensity then with some of the longer tempo stuff, which I mean is probably the case for a lot of setups. But I, I found it interesting even just the other day I saw a workout that you posted, which was I'm probably going to mess it up, but it was like 20 seconds rest, 200s um, in 31, 32. And there was like a lot of them. I can just remember that I was like, yeah, that was, that was last Tuesday. So Pete, he did three sets of eight uh, with 20 seconds rest. Uh, and they were in, supposed to be in 31s, but I think he was averaging just under 30. Uh, and, and that's in normal joggers on grass. So, um, you know, that's why I said we do those Tuesdays on grass. So it's quite a, it's a bit of volume. Uh, again, I'm playing with the rest. I think 20 seconds rest is uh, is it the least you can get out, away with. When I was coaching myself, I tried 15 second rest 200s. Um, and if anyone's ever looked at their stopwatch, they know it stops on the time for seven seconds and then the counter starts again. Um, so 15 seconds is not a lot of rest to turn around and get back to that 200 meter mark. Uh, but 20 seconds, we seem to make work. Okay. Yeah, that I honestly, when I, I had to read it a couple of times because I was like, surely not like that sounds like just like one of the toughest things i've ever seen because like obviously long jumper is very different we rarely do that work but i know like we would go off that pace like 10 of them by 200 or two minutes two minutes rest at that pace like and i think that would showcase like a lot of fitness by doing that but then i i thought 20 seconds turning around and do that again but obviously the demands of the event completely different um another kind of popular I suppose aspect to middle distance training aside from the double thresholds now is is the utilization of, of technology heart rate monitors you know um lactic uh you know measurement tools and so forth i suppose something that many of the great coaches talk about is that balancing science and the art of coaching you know using your intuition is, is something incredibly important and it sounds like you've leaned a lot of your own personal experience to create your your own methodology how yeah it's, it's it's a tough question but where do you see the place for for science i guess is a better way to integrate it because like, as you say you've kind of used a lot of experience to develop your philosophy and then and then where do you feel like science is a place in all of that yeah i i lean for the science side i lean a lot on our exercise physiologists that we have here in australia and you know i probably have a message every two days to the exercise physiologist asking questions, bouncing ideas off. Um, but my key philosophy is that everything has to be repeatable no matter where you are in the world. So, you know, that comes from the stuff you do in the gym. Um, I don't want to be using all these fancy machines. If I go to Europe and none of those machines are there and we have to rearrange. So I want everything to be repeatable no matter where we are. Um, and that's the benefits of using grass and, and dirt services because they're all over the world and you can, you can do that. The blood lactate stuff. I've never had any of my athletes that keen on getting their fingers pricked. We've tried it a few times, but again, they a lot of them don't like it. Um, and I don't have time to carry those devices around with me all the time. Um, so we just don't do it a lot. We've we've probably done blood lactates maybe three times in the last four years. Um, and just recently we 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 tried it, but we very rarely use it. Again, heart rate monitors we don't use very often um pete comes to workouts a lot without even a watch um sometimes he'll get halfway through a session and ask what are we doing or i have it written on a whiteboard and you'll still get it wrong so um i think that some of the the benefits of an athlete like pete and joseph Deng have is they're not highly stressed about the session and the data they just do what they're told and they go out there and run on feel 
Um, so, you, I mean, to get the point, yes, I think science has a a, play, a place and a big place. Um, but me as a coach, I tend to rely on my feel and look at the athletes and think, actually, you need to pull back rather than looking at a blood lactate to tell me that. Um, I, I can look at them and see how they're going, whether it's too hard or too easy. And I suppose from the fact that you're always kind of not present, but you're either receiving footage seemingly of the athlete um, and you've ran the, this kind of system so many years over is like you've really developed an eye for like, let's say, the responsiveness to those kind of different stimuli at this point. Yeah, I mean, I liken my coaching methods or my coaching style to you know, you've got two chefs and one follows everything by the recipe, measures everything out, follows it exactly and, you know, to a T. The other chef just goes by feel. He's, you see him, he's just chucking things in. But the end products are almost exactly the same. And that's what I'm like. I'm not saying I'm just chucking things in willy-nilly. But the years of running myself and, and coaching, I've got a good feel for it. So I know when I can add a little bit more. Uh or I know when to pull back. And I, and I think if you came to one of my training sessions, you'd hear me say slow down more than speed up. So I'm erring on the side of easy. Um, but there's sometimes then you just let them go and see what they've got to. Yeah, there's there's some great like kind of take homes and all of that is that like, number one, you you obviously do prioritize speed to a large degree, but at the same time, you know, you you understand and, and, and clearly like veer towards minimum effective dose and and not overcooking the volume side and everything else. So those are like very, very important things. I think for coaches at home to, to realize that like, yeah, you, you know, you, you've at this point in your coaching career made the mistakes of, of not even as a coach, but as an athlete, you know, that, that being greedy at times and trying to add everything and, and be so, um, yeah, like have that strong work ethic can, can lead you down a slippery slope and doing what's sustainable is it gets you a long way seemingly yeah i think as a coach i think the biggest mistake is you can get sometimes excited uh, and get caught up in the moment when a, a session's going really well um, i remember a session in 2020 when peter and joe the session was two 200s a 400 two 200s and they're supposed to run 22 high 22 high uh and then 47 and then 22 high 22 high and they ran, you know, 22-1 for the first one, 22-3 for the second one, and then they ran 47-0, but it was the easiest 47-0 I've ever seen. And I just made the call right there. I said, that's enough. There's nothing more we can get out of this, this session. You can, you know, I know two more 200s are on the paper, but what more am I going to get from that other than risking injury? Um, I said, you guys are ready to run. Um, let's just call it a day there. Unfortunately, COVID happened seven days after that workout. Um, so even the best plans can come unstuck, but I remember vividly that, that session, watching them run, just thinking, you guys are ready. I don't need to do any more. Um, let's just stop there. Um, and I think that's an art as a coach to know when your athletes have done enough. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a beautiful way to kind of tie up that, um, that subject. Lastly, I, I, I would, would like to kind of, I suppose, ask you, is there anything out there that you would, would give like number one advice to, to aspiring coaches who are, I suppose, maybe not having, they're not, they didn't have the luxury of making the amount of mistakes you did maybe when you were an athlete. Um, and they're, and they're trying to figure it all out. And I mean, it's, it's a never ending process really, but is there any like kind of key lesson that you'd kind of, um, yeah, you'd, you'd, you'd really like to bestow. 
Yeah, I just think always think long term. You know, I, I go back to the first athlete I coached, Alex Rowe. I had one athlete I was coaching. I couldn't afford to make mistakes because if he got injured, then I'd have no athletes that I was coaching. He's a very good junior. You know, he ran one forty six two when he was still in high school. You know, he went to he went to he did a year twelve full day of school. Went that night around one forty six two. Um, you know, he was eligible to go to World Juniors, but I pulled him back because. You know, I, I didn't I didn't want to send an athlete to World Juniors just to make me look like a better coach and get the results. We always thought about the long-term plan. Um, so I, I held him back there, you know, and I got a lot of flack from that, you know, back then in whenever it was, 2010, you know, why are you stopping from going to World Juniors? But I focused long-term development um, as a key, and I always stress that to him. So I had to stick to my guns and say, no, you're not going to World Juniors. And it paid off, you know, he ended up equaling the, the Australian record running 144.40. Um, but it might have backfired on me because he went so well in, in high school. He ended up getting into medicine and became a doctor. And then that was sort of the end of his end of his running. So why it was smart at the time, it backfired me in terms of his education. But I think you've got to always prioritize the long-term success of your athlete and not try to validate anything you're doing by having early success as a junior and getting someone on a team. Uh, I know it's even harder in Europe because you have, uh, you know, under 18s or under 20s and under 23s. So there's so many teams. But, you know, you just, as a coach, you just, the goal is not to get a, an athlete on a junior team. The goal is to make an Olympics, to make an Olympic final or World Champs final. So you just got to keep on working backwards from that that goal. Yeah. I, yeah. They could, you couldn't say it any better than that. That's some some brilliant wisdom for the, for the audience. Uh, Justin, just lastly, again, um, you know, many people obviously do follow your Instagram platform um, as well as other other um, kind of applications. But where can we find you if, if they're not currently following you? Yeah, just go on to uh, Twitter. I think it's Fast 8 Track Club. So 8, the number 8, not the, the word. Uh, and then Twitter, just look for Justin. Oh, no, sorry. Instagram, look for Justin Rinaldi. Um, post all the workouts there and the stories. Twitter, I give more examples of what, the sessions are and if you've got any questions just reach out to me i try answer every question that i get um i work full-time so I, I coach after work after hours so i probably i mean it's late here it's 10 13 p.m but sometimes i'm up to 12 o'clock answering questions um because i like to give back you know, like like i said at the very beginning every idea i've got is borrowed stolen you know learned from another coach uh, another athlete i used to ask a bunch of questions when i was athlete to other athletes so I feel like it's my duty to share on that that knowledge to other people. So I'll try and answer every question that comes my way. Yeah, you, you've certainly have here in, in this last hour and it's been a pleasure chatting to you, Justin. So thanks so much for taking the time to come on. Thanks for having me. Very welcome. Folks, I know we're in the middle of the indoor season or if you're over in Australia like uh, Justin is, you're in the middle of your outdoor domestic season. Um, but wherever you are, I hope that it's going well. And until next time, take care. Thanks again for taking the time to listen to another episode of the Track and Field Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed it and you'd like to support the show, you can head on over to a podcasting platform of your choosing and leave a review, or you can share it online on social media so that your network of practicing professionals can benefit from listening to the great guests that we get on this show.